Now I turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians as we continue making our way through this letter of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 20 through 25. And this is God's holy word as he inspired Paul to write as he continues this letter to the brethren at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 25, let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and therefore infallible word. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This is the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do pray that you would bless now the reading and the exposition and the hearing of your word. As we consider it, let it come to rest in our hearts that it might bring forth fruit in our very lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we saw that following the way of love that Paul talked about in chapter 13, the Christian must emphasize or favor that which would edify the church, that that which would build up Christ's people. Uh, Thus, for the Corinthians, that meant doing away with their overemphasis of the gift of tongues and favoring prophesying over that gift. Uh, Not just prophesying in the sense of receiving new revelation from God, but also uh, exposition, the telling forth of God's revealed word. The overemphasis on tongues Uh, probably led some to think that it was the best, if not the only clear evidence that the Holy Spirit was actually present in a congregation. And we have people like that with us this day for a little over a century. There have been some who have been emphasizing tongues again as if it were the only gift that could prove that somebody is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But in this passage, Paul points out that God's uh, truly in the midst of a church, uh, not which speaks in tongues, but which is mature in understanding, number one. Number two, uh, prioritizes believers over unbelievers. And third, prioritizes the ministry of God's word over other things which the church might legitimately do. Uh, We see in verse 25 that Paul's conclusion to his argument in these verses is that if an unbeliever or a person who is uninformed, he says literally uninstructed, 
uh, as in one who has maybe not received much Christian education, maybe a convert, but somebody who has, doesn't know much uh, except the basic gospel, uh, doesn't have a lot of Christian teaching. If such a person were to hear the word of God proclaimed and is convicted by it, it says, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So we see it's not the grandiose sign that so many thought was the evidence that God was among them, right? Uh, Not that grandiose sign of tongues, uh, which the Corinthian brothers found so impressive. It wasn't that that would actually convict the unbeliever or the less knowledgeable to say, oh, God is here. No, it would actually be the clear proclamation of the word of God. Now, the unbeliever finds that boring, but the one being convicted does not, as we saw in chapter 1, that to those who are perishing, God's word is ridiculous. The message of the cross, especially, is ridiculous. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, it is Christ himself. It's the power of God. And we might say that then about the uh, deeper exposition of God's word more broadly. Paul in this passage lays out three qualities of a church which is evidencing that God is truly in its midst. So, as I just mentioned, number one, God is truly in the midst of a church that is mature in understanding. Verse 20, brethren, Do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. There are ways in which Christians should be like babes, like little infants, like little children. Jesus says in Mark 10, verses 14 and 15, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. As we dig into the Greek of Mark, we see it's not that we must receive, as so many misread this, it's not that we must receive the kingdom the way an adult would receive a child, the way Jesus was taking little children into his arms at that point, but rather uh, we must receive the kingdom of God as a child receives. A little child does not earn the things that he or she receives from adults. You know, my wife and I don't change diapers or potty train or feed and clothe or bathe our daughters because they did the dishes and mowed the lawn, right? Uh, no, uh, they're not even capable of doing anything to earn what we give them. Everything they get from us, they receive as a free gift. Likewise, you and I receive God's kingdom as a child receives. Either we receive it as a free, unearned gift, or we don't receive it at all. But here Paul says that we must be little children in another way, babes in another way. He says we're to be like little children, like little babes when it comes to malice. Now, if you think too deeply about this, you might say, well, I don't have to teach my children to be malicious. They they just know how to do it, don't they? But what he's saying here is we need to act as inexperienced or incapable the way little babes are with most things in the world. 
inexperienced and incapable when it comes to treating others maliciously. The Greek word he uses there is kakia. It's a, it's a, a version of the word for moral evil. But uh, this is a nuanced version of the word that, that implies a, a motivation of hatred or disdain. So I would treat you in a way that's just motivated by a, a disregard for your value or perhaps even a hatred of you. Just maybe again, I'm kind of looking down my nose at you. And of course, this was a, a, a serious problem in the Corinthian church. It's why Paul wrote chapter 13, wasn't it? That he wanted them to emphasize love. We need to be uh, or act as inexperienced, as incapable of evil and especially of acting out of hate toward one another or out of a dismissal of the value of the other. Remember the first words of chapter 14, pursue love. That's the that's the premise for what Paul's saying here. Pursue love. That's why you would want to emphasize prophesying, for example, over tongues. That's integrally tied with the maturity of understanding that Paul enjoins in verse 20 which is why he opposes understanding to malice. He doesn't, notice he doesn't oppose understanding to lack of knowledge. If you have lack of knowledge, you can learn, you can grow knowledge. But he's saying the opposite of understanding isn't lack of understanding so much as it is wickedness, malice, hatred. In chapter 2, verse 6 through 10, he wrote, We, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So a church of which God is in the midst is a church which strives for maturity and understanding. What a tragedy it is that so many churches are content with shallow preaching. I've even heard people object to the pastor you know, getting too deep or teaching doctrine. And this, was, this wasn't even uh, somebody talking about me. This was somebody talking about another pastor. One case I remember somebody saying that she objected to how her, her pastor was preaching so much doctrine. And I said, well, if God wanted the church to be unconcerned with doctrine, why did he fill the Bible with it? But in this passage, Paul couples knowledge here with love as well. It's very important that we get deep into the knowledge of God, that we dig deeply into Scripture. We're not making disciples if we don't do that. But we also have to make sure that it's coupled with love. And that's what, why Paul uh, puts, it, puts knowledge here, understanding, uh, over against malice. In Revelation 2, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for the teaching, for their sound doctrine. Good job. You hate the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. There are all kinds of things you're doing. Great. You're teaching well. But then he says, he's going to, he threatens actually to remove 
their spiritual authority if they don't remember the love that they used to have. So those two things have to go hand in hand. A church mature in understanding must have both doctrine and love. It's not one or the other. There are also many, particularly in the the liberal modernist circles of Christianity, uh, that would say that we need to emphasize love and forget the doctrine. Of course, then they're defining love in an unbiblical way. But we have to have both. In fact, I don't know if it's a coincidence, I don't think it is, that, that Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, tells them to speak the truth in love, and then some years later, Jesus inspires, and in fact dictates to the Apostle John to tell the church at Ephesus that they forgot the love. They're speaking the truth still, but they've forgotten the love. They didn't heed Paul when he said, speak the truth in love. But a church that's mature in understanding will do both. And a church of which God is in the midst must have maturity of understanding. That's uh, in fact, so that maturity of understanding is going to involve love, but it definitely is going to involve a growth in knowledge as well. They're not going to, to flee from a maturity of understanding. And so part of the problem here, isn't it, is that, is that Paul is saying, well, you're emphasizing this gift over here that really isn't building up people's knowledge, and your understanding would be much more, would be built up much more readily if you were emphasizing these teaching uh, gifts. And also, if you would emphasize those over the other that makes one individual look very, very grand, if you would emphasize the one that builds up more, then that would be a way of showing love to one another. So he's showing how these things go hand in hand. But a church of which God is in the midst is going to be mature in understanding. It's going to strive for maturity in understanding. It doesn't mean that we are all going to be at the same level. But it's going to strive for it. Number two, God is in the midst of a church which prioritizes believers. It doesn't mean that we have nothing to do with unbelievers, but particularly in our worship, we're going to be prioritizing believers, right? In relation to the world at large, evangelism is the great priority of the church. It's a major point of Christ's great commission that he gave to his apostles. Many would say it's, it is Christ's great commission, but I think that's actually only taking half of the great commission. Now think of it in Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with his church even to the end of the age, especially when, what, they're making disciples, and that involves teaching them all that Christ has commanded. The Great Commission is fulfilled by proclaiming the gospel everywhere, and then by discipling those who respond in faith to the gospel. So the first half of the Great Commission is to get evangelists to places where they can preach the gospel to new people. But then it's not done until you're actually discipling those people, and that's an ongoing, lifelong process. When it comes to the church's internal activities, particularly worship, well, that's for believers. Believers are to be prioritized, Paul says here, verse 21 and 22. 
In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. In verse 21, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. In Isaiah 28, the Lord warned unbelieving Jerusalem if they would not receive his word uh, through Israelite prophets, he would proclaim it to them by foreigners. Also, you notice that there's, there's a kind of a double meaning as we read that passage, that the one sense you've got, you've got drunk priests, basically, and they're, they're stammering and slurring as they're trying to, to preach the word. But God says, so fine, if you're going to stammer and slur, I'll, I'll just preach to them by people of another tongue as well. And that's how Paul applies it here. Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, for with the stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. The message they failed to receive, but which those of other tongues would receive, was the message, then as he goes on, if we had read further earlier on in Isaiah 28, it's the message of the Messiah. Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That's a prediction of the Messiah coming. Act hastily actually can probably better be rendered as be in haste. That is, he will not be in haste, he will be at rest. The one trusting in the Messiah will be at rest. He'll be in that he'll have that refreshing that God talked about back in chapter or in verse twelve rather. Here in First Corinthians fourteen, Paul says that the gift of tongues, whereby people of various languages were convicted of the truth of the gospel, is one way that God has fulfilled Isaiah twenty eight, eleven and twelve. Paul says tongues are thus a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So in other words, if you're emphasizing it when you're in the midst of believers, well, that's not really edifying anybody that much. When, as in Acts chapter 2, people who do not yet believe hear the gospel, the mighty acts of God, as it's called in that uh, chapter, proclaimed in their native languages by people who they know could not have any way of knowing that native language, naturally they're, they're convinced that the message is authentically from God. So tongues is for unbelievers whom God is drawing to himself in that context to convince them to believe the gospel. Prophesying, on the other hand, is for believers to teach them more deeply the things of God. In the apostolic era, God gave messages through prophets to the church to guide them, as the scriptures of the New Testament were still being written. And also then, as we talked about previously, prophesying is a term that can include any proclamation of God's word. So in Paul's day, and to this day, the written word is to be exposited for God's people. And that is edifying. That is profitable for believers. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
The elect are brought to faith by the preaching of the word, and they're nurtured in faith by the preaching of the word. Since a worship service is held so that believers can gather together and worship the God who has saved them, believers need to be the focus of the internal activity of the church. We have the responsibility not simply of making converts, but as Jesus says in the Great Commission, of making disciples, lifelong learners and followers of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote, But the natural man does not receive things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. The church must never water down the message and its discipling. We can't water down discipleship. If we make our message palatable to the unbeliever, we're by definition not teaching the things which are spiritually discerned, as Paul said in chapter 2, and which we have the responsibility to teach to believers. One thing that tells us is that a church trying to be seeker-sensitive, so-called, when by seeker they mean somebody who's not yet a believer but who may seem to be seeking God, when the church is being seeker-sensitive in that sense, in its worship, it's actually going to fail. Oh, it might attract a lot of people to fill the seats in their worship space, but it's going to fail in its goal, in the church's goal, to make true disciples. It's going to fail in that commission from Christ. Believers, not unbelievers, must be prioritized. Otherwise, we will likely cease to be a true branch of Christ's church. God won't be in our midst. Obviously, unbelievers are to be prioritized when we're preaching, when we're evangelizing, right? That needs to be You don't evangelize people who are already believers, right? We grow them in wisdom, but we preach to unbelievers. But when we're coming together for worship, believers are to be prioritized. The church of which God is in the midst prioritizes believers. And thirdly, God is truly in the midst of a church which prioritizes the ministry of his word. There are many things a church may legitimately do But the teaching of God's word has to be the priority. Verse 23, Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? When properly used in evangelism in the apostolic era, tongues could convince an unbeliever. That's why Paul says it's for the unbeliever, not for the believer. But only if that unbeliever knew the language that was being spoken and also was aware that the speaker did not know that language. It was a a miraculous sign that this was a message from God. But if an uninformed person, that is a relatively new Christian who uh, is not yet well instructed or not yet deeply instructed, or an unbeliever... If such a person were to show up at a worship service and everybody's speaking in languages, various languages, and they don't know what's being said, 
what, what's that person going to conclude? These people are crazy. What are they doing? He'll be like the unconvicted witnesses in Acts 20.13 who heard the believers speaking in tongues and just said, well, these guys are drunk. In that case, Paul says the newcomer or, or visitor will think, you know, these people are out of their minds. They are crazy. However, if the unbeliever comes to a church and hears clear teaching, the word of God is clearly expounded, he might be convicted in belief. As, again, Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If the new convert who is yet is as yet uninstructed, if he comes, he hears God's word preached, and he's going to be built up by it. So verse 24 and 25, but if all prophesy, by the way, again, Paul is likely using hyperbole here. He's using exaggeration for effect. Uh, he, he's taught before that different Christians have uh, different gifts. Not everybody is going to speak in tongues. Not everybody is going to prophesy. But if there were one gift that he thought it would be beneficial for everybody to have, he says, not tongues, it would be prophesying. So back to verses 24 and 25, he says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. The secrets of his heart being revealed there, I don't think it's just a necessarily a miraculous sign like the, the, the extraordinary gift of prophesying and somebody says, I know what's in your heart, here's what you're thinking. But it's more, I think, just the ordinary preaching of God's word. You know how many times I have preached something to a congregation and I had no idea what was going on in a particular person's life. And then they would come up to me later on and say, you know, when you said X, Y, or Z, that that, that convicted me. And I wasn't even really even thinking of that kind of sin or whatever that person was talking about uh, when I preached it. But God revealed the secrets of his heart. God convicted that person of something that was going on in their lives, exposed it. Here was something that I needed to be built up in. Maybe it wasn't necessarily a sin, maybe just a, a building up their confidence to trust the Lord and something. The secrets of his heart are revealed, Paul says, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So if the Corinthians are all going to strive to display one gift, it would be far more profitable if it were prophesying rather than tongues, Paul says. He's, however, no more advocating literally that all should preach or prophesy than that he's advancing that all should speak in tongues. Right? Uh, he Remember chapter 12, uh, verse 29 and 30, he says, are, are all apostles... And this, he's asking these questions in ways that we know the answer is no. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, we all have different gifts. As we'll see in verse 27 when we get there, if 
If tongues occurs in the context of public worship, it should only be one or two or three at most who speak in tongues, and there must be someone there who understands, who can interpret. Likewise, not all will prophesy or preach, but all with that gift will do so in an orderly fashion, taking turns. And that preaching will convict, Paul says, unbelievers, and it will edify believers. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration that literally is breathed by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's the preaching of God's word that does that. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy then, preach the word in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. And in the following verses, he then warns Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Well, no true church can actually do that. A church must not do that or it will cease to be a true church. A church of whom God is in the midst will not do such a thing. Rather, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, 16-21, they will be heeding God's word in Scripture until Christ returns. A church of which God is in the midst is a church which prioritizes the ministry of God's word over its other legitimate activities. God is in the midst of a church which is mature in understanding. Paul helps us see what that means in this passage. For such a church will also prioritize believers and the word of God. So these things all go hand in hand. It's not like we're saying... How can you prioritize one thing and also another thing? These things are part of the same idea. But we see it's a church which stands, as it were, on those twin pillars then of sound doctrine and love. Do you crave sound biblical teaching? Are you growing in love of God and of neighbor, especially of your Christian sisters and brothers? A church of which God is in the midst prioritizes that, prioritizes believers. Public worship especially is for believers to approach God on his terms. But if we're to manifest the fact that believers are a family, God's own household, our, our first thought has to be for the household then of faith. But most especially in worship, our activities are are for believers approaching God covered in the righteousness of Christ. And it's for their edification. And a church of which God is in the midst then will be prioritizing the ministry of God's word because it will be seeking to edify those believers. By that ministry, disciples of Jesus are made. There is no other way to nurture Christ's people in the life of faith. Again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Cherish the ministry of God's word. 
And it may be that an unbeliever or a less knowledgeable Christian might come to our worship service and have no choice but to say, God is truly among you. Let's pray. Lord, may it be that we would show ourselves to be a church mature in understanding, prioritizing believers in the ministry of your word, that we may know that you're in our midst and that others indeed would be convicted of that very thing, that they would say God is truly among you when they come into our midst. And let this be the case for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.